Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The question is, is it the sense of the Senate that debate on the nomination of Gary Gensler of Maryland to be a member of the Securities and Exchange Commission shall be brought to a close? The yeas and nays are mandatory under the rule. The clerk will call the roll. Ms. Baldwin, Mr. Barrasso. Exactly 555 days ago, Gary Gensler was confirmed by the Senate to be the next head of America's Securities and Exchange Commission, the country's top financial markets regulator. The yeas are 54, the nays are 44. One senator responded present, and the motion is agreed to. Since then, he's given 60 speeches. I'm happy to appear here at SEC Speaks for the first time as chair. Thank you so much, Mindy, and it's good to be with Ceres today. I'm glad to be here today to help kick off the 40th Annual Small Business Forum. Proposed 37 separate filings for regulatory rules. Gary Gensler expected to speak today with anticipation that he could propose changes to the way that your stock orders are carried out. The Securities and Exchange Commission has come up with a regulatory agenda to bring in more regulation as far as ESG disclosures are concerned. Exchange Commission Chairman Gary Gensler says he hopes to regulate cryptocurrency exchanges this year while warning about stablecoins. And find Kim Kardashian. Kim Kardashian, charged now by the Securities and Exchange Commission for her role in promoting a crypto asset. So she's agreed to pay $1.3 million as a fine to the SEC. This is- it has been a remarkable run. For context, at this point in their terms, his predecessors, Jay Clayton, a Republican, and Mary Jo White, a Democrat, had proposed less than half as many rules. What is one of the most powerful regulators in Washington trying to achieve? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Alice Fulwood. I'm Samaya Keynes. I'm Mike Bird. And in this week's episode, we sit down with Gary Gensler. He tells us why he's been keeping an eye on what's happening in Britain. I would say just watching what's happened recently in the gilt market, it does, I think, remind us, like, can't just assume because it's a sovereign debt market, all will be fine. Defends his decision to single out Kim Kardashian. It's about knowing the conflicts, knowing that you as a promoter are getting paid by the company or whomever you're getting paid for and and what your interest is there. And he levels some pretty big accusations. Are you Satoshi? I probably wouldn't tell you if I was. I see. As we try to figure out what Gary Gensler wants and how he's going to get it. Hello, Mike and Sumaya. Hey, Alice. Greetings from a nation where, in a battle over staying power, Liz Truss lost out to the lettuce. Yes, congratulations on your third prime minister in as many months. Well, thank you. 
Speaking of people who haven't spent very much time in office yet, Alice, this week you sat down with Gary Gensler, who has only been in office around a year and a half. Even during that short time, he's managed to get a lot done and make a lot of people quite angry. Yes, I was excited to speak to Chair Gensler precisely because of how industrious he has been. And as you mentioned, that productivity has earned him lots of admirers, but, uh, but also a few enemies. And to be fair to Mr. Gensler, he has entered office at what is an extremely chaotic time for American financial markets. So he was appointed to his position about a year after the Treasury market seized up, a couple of months after retail traders pushed GameStop shares up 50-fold in a fortnight and pushed stock brokerage firms to the brink. There was a frenzy in special purpose acquisition companies or SPACs and in crypto. And the aftermath of all of that, uh, the crypto blowups, the SPAC washout has been pretty ugly. And he is certainly not letting any of those crises go to waste. He's been talking about these issues in speeches, in media interviews and in testimony on the Hill. And he's already proposed, as we've mentioned, a lot of new regulatory rules, especially for SPACs. He's proposed a new system for the Treasury market and some new equity market rules are supposedly imminent. And all of this has made him a divisive character? Yes, but basically everyone that I talk to in my reporting these days, from the the crypto bros in Miami to Wall Street tycoons and policymakers in Washington, everyone seems to have a very deeply held opinion about Gary Gensler, which is somewhat unusual for an SEC chair. His detractors mostly say he's overstepping. One banker somewhat sneeringly suggested that he fancied himself a superhero who was going to swoop in and solve every problem in American finance. But his backers say he's super sharp, very hardworking and deeply knowledgeable about regulation and finance. Uh, He was one of the youngest ever partners at Goldman Sachs. He's written various bits of Dodd-Frank. He ran another big financial regulator. And most recently, he taught a course on crypto at MIT. He sounds like an interesting guy. Shall we hear some of your discussion? We best. Gary Gensler, welcome to Money Talks. Pleased to meet you, Alice. Let's zoom out first and take your whole term at the SEC. You know, when you sat down after you were sworn in in April 2021 and you looked at everything that was going on, how did you decide, Okay, you know, these are my priorities. This is what I really need to be doing most. The then president-elect announced on January 18th that I was going to be selected. And then the meme stock craze Mm -hmm. and Jen Psaki in the White House press room would be asked about this on a daily basis in late January and February. (laughs) So those things were on my mind. And of course, the events of 2020, we were back in a period of time, not only where we had to worry about our health because of COVID, but also we had to worry about financial stability issues. So I came into the job not only thinking about, A, the privilege to serve and doing something that's better for the American public, making sure capital markets work more efficiently. But yes, B, those meme stock events, and C, very much about what can we do to make our markets more resilient, whether it's just in parts of the market that your readers don't look at as much, like the U.S. Treasury markets Mm -hmm. or money market funds or open-end bond funds. Well, the people that listen to Money Talks probably care about the Treasury market just as much as they do crypto and equity markets. So maybe let's pick up on that first. The, the Treasury market in particular is probably the, the single most important financial market in the world. It's the base upon which the rest of our U.S. capital markets are built upon. You take out a loan, a homeowner taking a mortgage, an auto loan, 
our big business taking out. It's atop that treasury market. It's also what our U.S. central bank uses. It's what foreign sovereigns use. And it's also the financing arm of the American government, which is its core function. But everything else, as you suggest, sort of rests on top of it functioning as it needs to. Absolutely. And I come into the job and we've got not only the events of 2020, when our central bank supported our U.S. Treasury market to the tune of a couple of trillion dollars nearly, Mm -hmm. but also the events of the fall of 2019, Mm -hmm. where we had some real jitters in our U.S. Treasury market around the funding side that's called the repurchase market. But it wasn't that long before that in 2014 that we had some real jitters as well in the markets and the pricing in treasuries. And of course, we meet here today when readers know so well that there were problems in the gilt market. And uh, I don't take any guilty pleasure on that. I look at it and I really say, this is a G7 country, the United Kingdom, that has these stresses and strain in its sovereign debt market. That's just another bit of evidence and reminder of how important it is that we look to build greater resiliency in our sovereign debt market, even if our sovereign debt market is larger than the United Kingdom. And even if we think of it as the most liquid and deepest market in the world, what risks are there there as central banks around the globe are receding from quantitative easing, going from accommodating to potentially tightening? And what liquidity is there? What depth in the markets, particularly at the longer end of the market, the longer term or duration parts of the market? And I think that's some of the things we've just witnessed happening in the gilt markets. You mentioned three periods of stress or or jitters in the Treasury market there. The flash crash of 2014, when the yield on the 10-year dropped and recovered about 1.6 percentage points in, in 12 minutes. The crisis in the repo markets, which are a critical funding market for Treasury purchases in 2019, and the dash for cash, uh, as it was called in March 2020, in which people were basically unable to sell Treasuries. These crises are all quite recent. What change is, is driving them? What I'd say about the Treasury markets, we've had jitters even before that. And I remember early in my time at Wall Street, at Goldman Sachs, when there were a number of big treasury dealers, Lombard Wall and Drysdale and others that went out of business, highly levered, leveraged dealers. What I didn't realize at the time of Wall Street is Congress passed a law in 1986, giving this agency, the Securities and Exchange Commission, a lot more authorities in the treasury markets. The change from the passage of that law in the 80s and the last number of years is across finance, the digitalization of finance. And I'm not talking crypto, but all of finance is digitalized. The the coming of the internet facilitated significant lowering the cost of communications and the interconnectivity of the worldwide capital markets, but also through high frequency traders or what we now call principal trading firms and electronic platforms to connect I mean, the days of lots of humans on trading floors now is transitioned to algorithms and electronic trading. I think there was also some changes out of the 08 crisis that changed around banks, the large 
so-called systemically important banks, but all banks around the globe and their capital requirements and liquidity requirements. Still, those changes might be contributing to the volatility or, or the prevalence of periods of stress. So what could be done to help the Treasury market work better than it does today? We, working with the U.S. Department of Treasury and the Federal Reserve, have rolled out a, a suite of proposals. One is to make sure that those principal trading firms and others that are making markets are properly regulated and registered as dealers. Two is that those inter-dealer platforms that are acting as mini exchange functions, as well as they're often the buyer to every seller and the seller to every buyer. So they're operating almost like mini clearing houses, the inter-dealer brokers, that they're properly registered and regulated. And thirdly, that we bring more of these transactions, both the cash transaction and the funding transactions in the repurchase market into the benefits of what's called central clearing. Mm -hmm. And I'd say lastly, to promote greater transparency in the actual trading. So we have proposals out on all of them. We'll see what the public says. But I would say just watching what's happened recently in the gilt market, it does, I think, remind us, like, you can't just assume because it's a sovereign debt market, all will be fine. And just to focus back on the US bond markets again, part of your solution is to register and regulate all of the dealers, including these sort of newer electronic so-called principal trading firms that you referred to earlier. So those are firms like Citadel, the high frequency uh, trader. But the story that I've heard from a lot of sort of other market participants focuses much more on the banks, which are already registered and regulated and still intermediate a lot of trading. And their balance sheets have become more constrained by various regulations over the last sort of 15 years. And the Treasury market has simultaneously ballooned in size. It's more than twice the size that it was in 2008. And so the problem, as as they describe it, is that you have sort of this massive increase in Treasury trading, which is going through these increasingly constrained intermediaries, you know, through ever smaller pipes. I think... The first is certainly a factor that some changes in regulations about banking and bank balance sheets. The second is a significant factor. When I first served at the U.S. Department of Treasury in the late 90s, our sovereign debt was about 35% of GDP, and now it's about 100%. Mm -hmm. In those 20 or so years that we've gone to electronic trading and significant involvement of high-frequency traders and the like, we've also roughly tripled our debt to GDP from about one in three dollars to one to one dollars. At the same time, around the globe, central banks moved into quantitative easing about, depending upon the jurisdiction, 10 to 15 years ago. And now they appear to be around the globe receding from that. And so markets adjust. So I want to pause here to explain why I was so focused on government bond markets in the first part of this interview. Yeah, that would be good. I mean, I did appreciate all of the guilty puns. Thank you. But why was that your focus? Well, there are essentially sort of two major tasks that financial regulators are fixated on. 
The first is people being ripped off. So fraud, scams, unfair practices and the like, the sort of micro concerns. And we get to those ideas in the second half of the show. But regulators are also supposed to safeguard against financial instability. That is their sort of big macro goal. And at the moment, with the sort of blow up in gilt markets, with the huge volatility we've seen in asset prices, financial stability feels like the more urgent problem to be focused on. And as the treasury market is such an important part of the financial system, as Mr. Gensler said, it underpins sort of everything else. That was top of my priority list. As much as I would enjoy 40 minutes of it alone, you didn't just speak about bond markets, right? No. And after the break, you'll hear more of my conversation in which we zoom in on some of those sort of micro fairness concerns. So are retail traders getting a good deal on most crypto projects, just unregistered securities? And what can Mr. Gensler do about it? We also briefly discussed who might be Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator of Bitcoin. That sounds intriguing. But before that... It is our favourite time of the show. Yes, where we tell you that you really ought to take out a subscription to The Economist. We've already told you how great our coverage of Britain's seemingly endless political paroxysms are. There's a lot more this week on the new Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. And if inexplicably you can't bear to read any more on Britain, we've got some really fantastic reporting about the protests currently happening in Iran. Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. And if you're already a subscriber, thank you so much. Do let us know what you think of the podcast at podcasts at economist.com. And also check out our newsletters, The Bottom Line and Money Talks at economist.com slash newsletters. As usual, all of those links are in the notes to this episode. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Right, so where do we pick up next? Well, one of the most hotly debated topics in financial regulation at the moment is whether trading on America's equity markets is fair And some rulemaking from the SEC on this topic is probably imminent. In a speech on June 8th, Gary Gensler noted that market segmentation and concentration mean there is no longer a level playing field in the stock market. And it's not clear that the market system is as fair and as competitive as possible for investors. So I began by asking him about that fairness for retail investors. Why don't we turn to the equity markets now? So when a retail trader buys a single share today in any company, say JP Morgan Chase, do you think they're getting the best possible price? If you place an order on an online brokerage or on an app or elsewhere, and it's a market order, the vast majority of those go to a small handful of wholesalers. And though we have moved three, four years ago to a zero commission, we should not confuse that with zero cost. 
I've asked staff here to really focus in on how we can enhance greater competition for that hypothetical one share transaction, particularly for the retail public, but also for the whole market, how we can better level the playing field between the lit market and the dark market. And by dark market, I mean the trades that go to internalizers or wholesalers that aren't seen by the whole market. And it's all digital, it's all electronic. And the question is, how do we enhance the competition in a 2020s environment and use the tools that we have at the SEC? And when, depending upon the day, a third to a half of the market is in the dark market rather than lit market, and when so much of the flow is going to wholesalers, that one, one share trade that you just talked about, it doesn't necessarily see institutions on the other side competing for that one share or my 100 shares either if, if I did a 100 share trade, which is the chair of the SEC I'm not doing. I just want to make sure the record shows. Of course not. And the price retail gets is often compared to a yardstick, this sort of national best bid and offer, which represents the price that others get on the exchanges or in those lit markets. A lot of the people that trade on exchanges actually get better than the national best bid, best offer. They could get midpoint. There's a significant part of the market that trades at mid. There's also parts of the market on the lit markets that get price improvement. Right. So just to break it down for listeners, there are two prices we're talking about here. The national best bid and offer, which is the price that in theory retail would get if their orders were routed to the exchanges or those sort of lit markets. And then there's the price that they actually get. So when retail brokerages like Robinhood route their orders to wholesalers like Citadel, those wholesalers fill those orders at a so-called price improved level. So they compare to the sort of price that you might get on an exchange and say, we've given you a better price than you would have got if your order had been sent to an exchange. And because Citadel pay Robinhood to receive those orders, this is referred to as the so-called payment for order flow model. Why is that not a good deal for retail? It has little to do with the best price or best execution. This national best bid, best offer is limited by rule to have no smaller increment than a penny. And there are many, many securities that might be able to be traded and quoted at sub-penny. Off exchange, the wholesalers don't have that. Mm -hmm. So I've asked staff to consider, ought we not harmonize the minimum increments for quoting and trading, not just on exchange, but off exchange? And let's kind of level that up. Maybe two, we should narrow this minimum increment. Why should it be different off exchange than on exchange? And off exchange at these wholesalers, they can quote like a thousandth of a penny if they want. So if you were to fix that problem and make it such that the exchanges like the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ, they could also quote, you know, whatever prices they liked. Do you think this sort of whole setup, this payment for order flow, free retail trading, that whole business model, would it still exist or does it depend on what you describe as this unlevel playing field between the exchanges and the wholesalers? Our goal is to get a better deal for the public and to narrow this spread and the cost of the middle. 
what I said earlier. <laughs> so all about narrowing the costs in the middle. And then so you rightly say, well, then the middle might say, well, wait, 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 I have concerns. And they're going to throw up a lot of issues. And I think that on your two questions, there are already brokers that do zero commission and pay no payment for order flow, zero. And there's some big ones. I do think that if we harmonize across the dark markets and the lit markets, these minimum increments, if we lower that minimum increment, if we adopt up at the SEC a best execution rule, if we bring some greater disclosure to this market as well, and I've also asked staff to consider for retail market orders, might we consider some order by order competition or auction mechanism. So we're kind of considering this suite of things. If we do propose something, it'll be the first time in 17 years that we look across the whole market. So much has changed in 17 years. I mean, other jurisdictions have just banned the business model as it stands. The UK has, Canada has, the uh, European Union or through ESMA, they're considering it right now. That's right. Yes. So why is that not the approach that you want to take? Again, I can't prejudge where we'll come out, but our goal is about enhancing the competition and lowering the cost. So it's, it's what package of reforms would be best to do that. Okay. Well, let's turn to another retail favorite then, the crypto industry. A lot of the debate at the moment seems to focus on where the boundaries of your agency's authority are. So whether crypto tokens are commodities or securities or something else. Do you need legislation to help clarify this? I I think that nearly 90 years ago, Congress painted with a broad brush. I'm quoting Thurgood Marshall, a very famous Supreme Court justice who wrote that in the 1970s. And while they included 30 plus things that were security, stocks, comma, bonds, comma, notes, comma, investment contracts, and the like. At the heart of it, and as our Supreme Court has said, it's about the investing public being protected when somebody is raising money from the public and the public's anticipating profits based on the efforts of others. So just to keep listeners up to speed, Congress created the Securities and Exchange Commission almost 90 years ago, and there are sort of two landmark Supreme Court cases which have helped define the boundaries of the SEC's authority. The first is the SEC versus Howey in 1946, which gave us the so-called Howey test, in which the Supreme Court defined the test for whether a scheme is an investment contract or a security as an investment of money in a common enterprise with profits to come solely from the efforts of others. The second case is Reeves versus Ernst & Young in 1990, and that's the case in which Thurgood Marshall wrote the majority opinion and determined that Congress had painted with a broad brush when defining the scope of the market in which to regulate. So how does all that apply to crypto? Think about the 10,000 or so tokens in this crypto market space. A group of entrepreneurs somewhere stands up an internet site They make some Medium post or Reddit post, or they go to crypto Twitter. They go to a bunch of crypto conferences. They hire lawyers, somebody signing on behalf of some legal entity. Maybe they have the lawyers set it up in various companies to try to 
obscure that there is a group of entrepreneurs in the middle. Now think about the public. The public is buying these tokens for what reason? To have a better future. They're anticipating a profit based upon the efforts of others. I think to think otherwise is obscuring what's actually going on here with these 10,000 tokens. So I can't prejudge any one of them, but I think very few of them don't meet that. And that's the core of as Thurgood Marshall said, like because the public needs disclosure to make the choices about the risks they take. They need the protections of a federal authority to protect them against shams and frauds and schemes. So maybe a lot of these things were securities to begin with, but do you see a future in which some of them have maybe transitioned out of being securities? I guess you could have made the case that maybe that's what happened with Bitcoin. Maybe in the beginning it was this... Are you Satoshi? I probably wouldn't tell you if I was. Hmm. I say, we have finally found Satoshi. <laughs> yes, imagine. Uh, well, people do think... You're very generous to be sitting here with, you know, your 700,000 or a million coins locked up in a private key somewhere too. Yes, and the, the creator of Bitcoin does hold an awful lot of uh, Bitcoin, just nobody knows who they are. But now we know it's you. Yes, this is a, a news exclusive. Gary Gensler has correctly pinned it on me, Alice Fullwood of The Economist. That is not an SEC finding. I just want to make sure for the record. <laughs> okay, uh, moving on. One last question on crypto then. Why are things like enforcement actions against people like Kim Kardashian important, you know, beyond a news cycle? Let me, let me mention two things. Congress came together actually 80 years ago. I'm sorry, 90 88 years ago or so, and put together our securities laws. And one of the provisions was about when you sell a security that the public should know about that promoter, something. If you tout a security and you, you should know the nature of any payments and where they're coming from and the like. Now, why was that? And then fast forward to Miss Kardashian. It's about knowing the conflicts knowing that you as a promoter are getting paid by the company or whomever you're getting paid for and, and what your interest is there. There was something different about securities. And I think Congress did that because they said, this is about people's retirement, this is about their savings, this is not just food or makeup or other products. I think it is important when we think about enforcement cases of course, to follow the facts and the law where they take us, to think clearly about what are the economics, what are the real economics. And I think about crypto this way too. When you pull back all of the talk and promotion and yes, hype, what are the real economics? The public is anticipating profits based on the efforts of others. But it's also important to look at cases that help send a message to a market. And we, we do that from time to time. We have limited resources and now we bring a little over 700 cases a year. It's important also at times to bring cases that help behavior of the rest of the market. Gary Gensler of the SEC, thank you for joining Money Talks. Thank you so much to uh, meet you, talk with you, Alice, and Satoshi, if it is Satoshi. So, Alice, is this where you tell us that you have something to announce? 
No, no, of course not. And I mean, I certainly wouldn't tell the world this way if I were anyway. Yeah, I've, I just want to put it out there that I have always suspected. <laughs> I mean, uh, what did you make of what Gary Gensler had to say in the second half there? I guess, first of all, as if we needed more evidence of it, he really does have a huge number of topics on his plate that he is trying to regulate or, or rule make about. We spoke for about 40 minutes in the end and we touched on sort of three really big ones, the treasury market, retail and crypto. But we didn't even get to environmental regulations, SPACs or a number of other important things that he's working on. And I guess in person, he speaks very carefully with the precision of a central banker. And perhaps he's sort of steering back to his big talking points. But on each of the subjects we did get to discuss, he seemed to want to cut through the sort of complexity as much as possible and go back to first principles. So does the bond market work as well as it possibly can? Are retail traders getting the best price? Are people just buying crypto because they expect profits from some scheme? And that does make it hard to pin him down on on the details, but it does kind of explain a a little bit perhaps about why he's been so industrious. Finance has shifted incredibly rapidly over the past few years, and it's perhaps better than any other industry at finding sort of new and ingenious rents and adapting to the old rules. So when a new regulator comes in with fresh eyes and sort of takes that first principles approach, there's a lot for him to dig into. That doesn't necessarily mean that that his solutions, uh, some of which will probably be quite radical, will necessarily be any good. But the proposed rules for SPACs were quite clever and have been pretty effective already at slowing capital raising in those vehicles, which seem to be driven mostly by regulatory arbitrage. We have had a lot of other proposals from the SEC on, on other topics, and there are more to come. But given it's still early in his term, few of them have been finalised or implemented yet. So he's been a very busy SEC chair Uh, But the jury's out on whether he is going to be a very effective one. So it's really interesting to me. I suppose I'm coming at this from a slightly more abstract perspective. And obviously, I get why the head of the SEC has to pay attention to retail traders and retail stocks. But I find myself a little bit puzzled sometimes about the way we, we talk about retail traders. And I think this is particularly in the US, almost in the same way that we talk about small businesses as there's a sort of social utility to the activity. In Asia, there's a lot of places where there's sort of institutionalization of financial trading that the US has is a matter of envy and retail trading is seen as an avenue for speculation and financial fragility. And it's not something you actually necessarily want to have the smoothest version of. Obviously, that's not so much a question for Gensler. It's a political one. It's his job to make the markets in front of him as fair and transparent as possible. But I'm a bit of a skeptic. Yeah, if I were still allowed to mention my crypto WhatsApp group, at this point, I might defend the social utility of said group. But since I'm not allowed, I will make a different point, which is, I suppose, a bigger one about what I was struck by actually right at the beginning of the conversation, which is that regulators are watching the UK and and perhaps even taking lessons from that. Over the past few weeks, the, the problems in the UK in some cases were happening at quite weird bits of the market that you would think were much thinner than equivalents in the US. And so it's kind of interesting that it's still enough to worry US regulators, right? It it now seems like everyone is just scouring the the financial landscape, looking for places where there might be similar blow-ups. I think actually when it comes to crypto, though, you know, perhaps there might be other lessons that American regulators could take from the UK in in the way that we do financial regulation. We're much, much less fragmented, which I think means that 
British regulators have an easier time coming up with a single coherent way of treating crypto. I do appreciate that in general, the last few weeks haven't exactly cemented Britain's reputation as somewhere to take lots of lessons from. Um, But maybe there are a couple. Yeah, there definitely does seem to be a sort of lot of time and energy in the US spent on which financial regulator gets which bit of crypto. And it is easier if there's just one who definitely does. But shall we pivot to our stats? Yes, I am going to go first with a UK-focused one to let you off the hook. Uh, 170 is my statistic of the week. It's in centimetres. And it is supposedly, this is where I'm going to get a little bit conspiratorial, supposedly the height of Rishi Sunak, a new prime minister. Now, I have my suspicions measuring him up visually against other politicians that perhaps he's a he's a centimetre or two shy of that. I, I am around the same height. So so I feel I have a, a sort of both an affinity and a, an acute eye here. I'm quite excited to see him measured up against 173 centimetre Emmanuel Macron to see if there really is a gap of just slightly over an inch there. I suspect it's a little bit more. I cannot wait for the kind of investigative journalism that The Economist will, will promote there. <laughs> now, I was actually also going to stick with the UK this week, and my stat is 56%. 56% of the public, polled by YouGov, a pollster, thinks there should be an early general election. So watch this space. Maybe the carnage in British politics is not quite over. My stat, perhaps as a blessing, is totally random again this week. I'm going back to my old form and it is 9 million people, which is the number of people that watched the House of Dragons finale live. So House of Dragons is the prequel to Game of Thrones, obviously the hugely successful HBO show. And apparently the House of Dragon finale is the most successful viewing night for HBO since uh, Game of Thrones ended. Yeah, we're sticking with a similar theme there. They're all leadership contests, right? Yes, slightly uh, slightly bloodier, I guess. And with that, our thanks this week to Gary Gensler, the SEC chair. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher. Our editor was Kim Gittleson. Our sound engineer was Nico Raufast. I'm Alice Forward. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Samaya Keynes. And this is The Economist. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.